0: Our subject would have been the perfect protagonist for Greek or Shakespearean tragedy. A commanding officer struck down only hours after his greatest tactical success. An officer and man who saw life in the most simplistic of terms, he was modest and impeccably honest. Interestingly, he was a study in contrast. Complex yet simple. Harsh then soft. Restless then reposed eccentric yet predictable, ambitious yet humble, wrathful then righteous. Yet for all his quirks and eccentric habits, he was, as Douglas MacArthur noted, one of the most remarkable soldiers we have ever known. His mastery of two of the greatest elements of victory in war, surprise and envelopment, never has been surpassed. Yes, an avalanche from an unexpected quarter, a thunderbolt from a clear sky. This is part one of the remarkable life and career of Thomas Jonathan Jackson, the man who needs no introduction other than simply Stonewall. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. At 5 foot 11 he was large boned as evidenced by his size 13 shears. In dress and day-to-day appearance he was disheveled. Many described him as homely, to watch him ungraceful, even lumbering. On horseback, not the most inspiring, he used short stirrups in his head. More often than not, was on the same plane as his horse's head. His eyesight was not the best. And as to his musical appreciation, well, he was completely tone-deaf. At a social gathering during the war, he asked a young vocalist to sing Dixie. She had just finished singing it. Always, always in his possession, Webster's Dictionary, the Bible, and Napoleon's Maxims. His fame was such that he was the only officer whose likeness graced Confederate currency. The $500 bill, their most expensive note. Two vessels were named for him. One was captured in February of 1863, and incredibly, federal forces retained the name. He had Sunday quirks about letters in their transit. He never read newspapers on the Sabbath. Quite the hypochondriac, he was dyspeptic. His diet was so strict and rigorous that he took his own food to parties. He believed pepper made his right leg lose strength. A devout Presbyterian, he believed in Old Testament-like action, prompt, fierce, decisive. If repulsed, fall back, but look for a chance to counter-strike. If the enemy was driven from the field of battle, pursue. Yes, Thomas Jonathan Jackson was indeed an avalanche from an unexpected quarter, a thunderbolt from a clear sky. Born near Clarksburg, Virginia, today West Virginia, Just after midnight, January 21st, 1824, he was the third child to Jonathan and Julia Neal Jackson. Brought into this world with brown hair and blue eyes, he was named for his maternal grandfather. To say his life was hard would be a gross understatement. When he was two, his older sister died of typhoid. Twenty days later, his father passed from the same malady. A sister, Laura, was born the next day. His widowed mother was unable to make ends meet, so at seven years of age, young Tom Jackson was painfully, tearfully separated from his mother and siblings. A bachelor uncle, Cummins Jackson, took him in. Not so much a father as he was a big brother. The separation from his mother was made permanent in December of 1831 when he learned she at 33 years of age, had died of tuberculosis. His childhood was dominated by incredible loneliness, so much so that later in life, he never discussed or brought up his youth. Sadly, he was never a child, and that child would be the father of the man. His uncle took him to Jackson's Mill in Lewis County on the West Fork River where the Jackson property included a grist mill, a grain mill, a carpenter's shop, a blacksmith forge, quarters for a dozen slaves, numerous barns and outbuildings, and a country store. When young Thomas craved solitude and sanctuary, he rode across the river to a stand of white poplars and sugar maples. While at Jackson's Mill, he learned of the passing of yet another family member, his stepfather, Incredibly, at 12, he was separated from his brother and remaining sister, and had lost an older sister, his mother, father, and now stepfather. It's no wonder that by 15, he suffered from terrific gastrointestinal pain. No surprise he turned to a greater power, that of religion, so much so that at one time he considered becoming a minister, but uncomfortable with public speaking, he gave up that idea. However, he never gave up his hunger for knowledge, but while he craved it, it did not come easily for him. He labored at mastery, but accumulated enough that by November of 1840, he became a schoolteacher, paid $5.64 a term. He held that position until January of 1841. Then came a 10-month stint as a constable, but he wanted more, much more, a West Point appointment. He established contact with Virginia Congressman Samuel Hayes, a Lewis County resident and kinsman, but Hayes had already appointed another, a young man by the name of Gibson Butcher. Young Tom Jackson was crushed. But fate intervened for Butcher's duration at West Point lasted exactly one day. When Butcher returned home, Jackson's friends sought him out, made him aware of the vacancy, and urged him to seek out Congressman Hayes. With the Academy's term to start in less than three weeks, Jackson and an accompanying slave began the some 250-mile journey to Hayes' office in Washington City. The two rode through driving rain to reach Clarksburg in an effort to catch the eastbound stage. Late by about an hour, they missed it. Jackson, with his servant laboring to keep up, galloped another 20 miles through more rain and mud until he caught up with the stage in Grafton, Virginia. Barely two weeks after young Gibson Butcher left West Point, a mud-splattered Thomas Jonathan Jackson showed up in Samuel Hayes' congressional office. It was June 17, 1842. Two days later, he climbed the long hill from the Hudson River and arrived at West Point. A member of the class of 1846, he was one of six orphans. One cadet remembered Jackson's demeanor upon arrival. That fellow looks as if he has come to stay. However, in a battery of early tests, Jackson's limited education caught up to him. He was lumped into what was labeled the immortals, academically, the weakest section. Perhaps it was the stress of the challenges ahead, but he began to complain about one arm and leg feeling heavier than the other. When that symptom manifested itself, He raised one arm up higher than the other to, as he believed, relieve the excess weight. Nicknamed Old Jack, his social awkwardness made him unpopular with many of his fellow cadets. Sensing that, he seemed to use his shyness, aloofness, and silence as a shield. In early January of eighteen forty three he experienced the first of his semi annual examinations. Of the one hundred and one cadets in his class he was sixty second in mathematics, eighty eighth in French. Exemplary conduct, only four demerits, helped him. He was ranked seventy first. By the time of his second examination period, he jumped from 62nd to 45th in math and from 88th to 70th in French. As to good conduct of 223 total cadets, he ranked 38th. From June 1842 to June 1843, he accumulated 15 demerits. One of his classmates, another Virginian, George Pickett, had 167. It is a fact that in his four years at the military academy, Jackson, though he received demerits, not one was for any kind of actual misconduct. Academically, he willed himself to improve each academic year. When Cadet Jackson completed his study in June of 1846, he had amassed one of the most amazing records in the history of West Point, once an immortal he graduated 17th of 59 in a class that produced 20 generals. On contemporary remembered as to old Jack's years along the Hudson, Thomas Jonathan Jackson appeared, achieved, then disappeared. Jackson wanted assignment to the artillery, an honored arm that Napoleon had chosen at the beginning of his military career. He got his wish. In 1846, his graduation coincided with this country's war with Mexico, and so 22-year-old 2nd Lieutenant Jackson was made a part of the 13,500-man force under the command of Lieutenant General Winfield Scott. Arriving March 9, 1847, Jackson demonstrated his worth quickly, fighting ably and bravely, in particular at Cherubusco, he was promoted. Under Scott, he learned much to appreciate the shortcomings of volunteers, the military value of flanking, the value of reconnaissance, boldness, surprise, the need for discipline, and the necessity of clean hospitals. Breveted Major and part of the army of occupation after Mexico surrendered. He grew a mustache and beard, he developed a love for fruit, mastered Spanish, and incredibly, considering his dour personality, learned to dance and notice girls. By 1849 he was a first lieutenant in the United States regular army and held assignments at Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn and Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania. In April of that year, 1849, he was baptized into the Episcopal Church. Then came orders to report to Tampa in December of 1850, where at that time, Tampa consisted of only 80 buildings and 200 inhabitants. It was there he became involved in an ugly squabble with his commander, Captain William H. French. Both sticklers for discipline, Well, their chemistry was toxic. The relationship deteriorated so badly that Jackson not only made the decision to leave Florida, but on May 21, 1851, he resigned his commission. Soon thereafter, he received an appointment to teach at the nation's second-oldest governmental military school, VMI. At 31, the veteran of the Mexican War became a professor of optics, artillery, and natural and experimental philosophy. Today, that would be physics. Like his academic study at West Point, his preparation was rigorous. Quite honestly, he was never more than one lecture or two ahead of his students. Similar to academic life at the military academy, he prepared his lessons by rote memorization. In his class, there was no discussion. There was no analysis or explanation. A student's question threw him. If he received one, it was like stopping a recorder, rewinding to a point in his memorized lecture, then hitting the play button once again. Single-mindedness may make a good general, but not a college professor. Unpopular with students, they called him Squarebox for his big feet, Old Jack or Tom Fool. Once with Jackson as his target, a cadet dropped a brick from a barracks window. It missed him by inches. Thudding into the ground, he never flinched. On November 22, 1851, he accepted, no, a better word might be he absorbed Presbyterianism. By doing so, he gave up dancing. He gave up amusements. The Presbyterian church became his home, his fortress, his refuge. Two of his favorite verses were Revelation, 21st chapter, 4th verse, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And Romans 8th chapter, 28th verse and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. At Lexington, Virginia's Presbyterian Church, he always sat on the left-hand side of the left aisle near the wall adjacent to Nelson Street. There he sat and listened to sermons from the Reverend Dr. William Spotswood White, and at every service fell asleep asleep sitting bolt upright with hand on chin. People nudged. They jostled. One lady even used a hat pin, but nothing roused him. His habit encouraged teasing. A hypnotist came to town, and Jackson volunteered to be placed into a trance. The hypnotist tried and tried, but for all his effort, his subject stared unblinkingly right back at him. Finally, a little girl spoke up in a loud voice. No one can put Major Jackson to sleep but the Reverend Dr. White. The auditorium exploded in laughter. His day-to-day routine was precise. At 6 a.m., private prayer, cold bath, and a half-hour walk. At 7, family prayers, breakfast, and a one-half-mile walk to his 8 o'clock class. When he finished his last class at 11 o'clock, he returned to his home for a standing study session with the Bible, then reviewed material to be taught the next day. You see, he had two strengths that helped his preparation, focus and a photographic memory. Interruptions during study sessions were simply not allowed. At 1 p.m. there was lunch, then from 1.30 to 2 there was time with his wife, In late afternoon, there was a walk or ride with his wife, then a light supper. After supper, he had a two-hour review of lessons while sitting upright in a chair or standing bolt-straight facing a wall. At 10 p.m., he went to bed. I mention a wife. In autumn of 1852, Professor Jackson took an interest in Eleanor Ellie Junkin, the daughter of the president of adjoining Washington College. Filled with feelings that left him bewildered, Jackson admitted, I don't know what has changed me. Professor D.H. Hill told him, You're in love. On August 4, 1853, 29-year-old Thomas Jonathan Jackson married 28-year-old Miss Ellie. Sadly, their time together spanned only 14 months. On the 22nd of October, 1854, she gave birth to a stillborn son but appeared to come through the ordeal. However, an hour or so later, uncontrollable hemorrhaging began and that proved fatal. It was not an uncommon occurrence. In the rural South at that time, one of every six white mothers died in childbirth. No matter, Jackson was devastated. Once again, someone he loved was taken from him. Yet he refused to show it. One evening, in the solitude of a room in his house at 8 East Washington Street, there in Lexington, the 30 year old added a personal note to his book of maxims. He wrote at the top of a page Objects to be affected by Ellie's death, to eradicate ambition, to eradicate resentment to produce humility. If you desire to be more heavenly-minded, think more of the things of heaven and less of the things of earth. As a result, he threw his very mind, heart, body, and soul into the church. One of his favorite projects, though against Virginia law, was the teaching of a Negro class, a Sunday school class for free black and slave children. They called him Mars Major. In July of 1845, he traveled to Europe, where he visited seven countries. Interestingly, the only battlefield he visited was Waterloo. Upon his return, he renewed an acquaintance with a young lady who had been educated at Salem College, which, of course, today is located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That lady made it clear she would not marry a Democrat, a widower, or a soldier. In the middle of July 1857, she married a man who was all three. Jackson called Anna Morrison, my esposito, my sunshine, and on the last day of April 1858, she gave him a daughter, Mary. Sadly, almost a month later, their first child died of a liver disorder, and there was more troubling news. This time within the nation, and close to home, there in his native state of Virginia. In December of 1859, he led a VMI artillery section to Harper's Ferry to observe and supervise the hanging of abolitionist John Brown. As to the issue of slavery, Jackson neither apologized for nor spoke in favor of it. Professor James I. Robertson, Jr., who authored a definitive Jackson biography, believes he probably opposed the institution, but in Jackson's mind, since the Creator sanctioned the use of slaves, man had no moral right to question its existence. As to states' rights, Jackson advocated the principle, but also believed their use did not condone or allow secession. He held this position even after the firing on Fort Sumter. But Lincoln's call for troops three days later, like many others in the Upper South, pushed him over the edge. He believed the South's constitutional rights had been abridged. He believed the war was ordained by God. And so, on the 21st of April, 1861, he led 175 cadets to Richmond. Many of those cadets served as drill masters for the thousands of raw volunteers who flocked to the Confederate capital. Promotion came quickly for Jackson. On April the 25th, he was made a major in Virginia's topographical engineers. The very next day, he was made a colonel of Virginia volunteers and ordered to the vitally important town of Harper's Ferry. There, he was placed in command of the 2nd, 4th, 5th 27th, and eventually the 33rd Virginia. He drilled them seven hours a day. There is an almost assuredly apocryphal story about his time there, but it is worth sharing. Supposedly Jackson complained that the never-ending noise from trains emanating from the double-tracked, still-in-federal-hands B&O Railroad disrupted his camps And it had to stop or else. Amazingly, railroad officials agreed to funnel all traffic through the town between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. To do that, however, trains had to run in both directions from Cowcatcher to Caboose. Jackson, the story goes, then moved to block all rail traffic headed east from Point of Rocks, Maryland and all westbound traffic from Martinsburg, Virginia. The result? He bottled up 56 locomotives and 300 cars, and all were captured. Perhaps a story, but a good one. Word of his Confederate command reached his surviving sister, Laura. Jackson's marriage to Anna a few years earlier evidently spoiled the close relationship Laura shared with her brother. Such now was her distaste For her brother's Confederate service, she, a Unionist, refused to mention him. She even went so far as to imply that he had cheated on his West Point entrance exam. Back to his brigade at Harper's Ferry. In the middle of May 1861, there was a change in command. Brigadier General Joseph E. Johnston arrived and, deeming the town indefensible, decided to abandon the town. Jackson thought the move unwise and said so. That concerned Johnston, who believed his lieutenant, outspoken, too aggressive. And Confederate President Jefferson Davis agreed. Truth be known, down in Richmond, there were some doubts about this eccentric by-the-book officer. More sparks flew when Jackson learned that Johnston planned to destroy the extensive B&O railroad shops at Martinsburg, Virginia. Yet, given the assignment, ever the soldier, Jackson followed his orders. Some 56 locomotives and tenders and 305 coal cars were either set afire, pushed into the Opaquan River, or dismantled to the point of uselessness. Jackson then opted to take liberty with his orders. He had two railroad engineers show up in Martinsburg, where they selected the 13 least damaged locomotives, dismantled their engines, and then pulled by 40 horse teams, sent them overland 38 miles south to Strasburg, Virginia, down in the Shenandoah Valley. Each trip took three days of hard labor. Unique in its design, the practice of sending rolling stock overland to points elsewhere, originated with Jackson. With the arrival of July came his first combat command test. It occurred July 2nd at a place known as Falling Waters in, again, then Virginia. Although the engagement was little more than a skirmish, he performed well. He handled his untested brigade in a calm and patient manner. He moved smartly to repel a Union attack, and while frontal fighting ensued, he sent a flanking column which turned the enemy's position. His action did not go unnoticed. The day after the fight, Richmond sent word that he had been promoted to Brigadier General. And it appears at Winchester, where Jackson's force had retreated to, Providence saved him from injury. During a review of his brigade, his men stunned and open-mouthed watched their commander dash down their line at breakneck speed. Passing his last regiment, he and his mount galloped on and disappeared over a hill. Later on, his men learned that Jackson's horse had run away with him. It could have been quite serious. In mid-July, word arrived that a Federal Army was approaching Manassas Junction in Virginia, and Joseph Johnston, defending it, needed Jackson to move his 2,611-man brigade 57 miles from Winchester to the rail junction as quickly as possible. By doing so, they became a part of military history. At Piedmont Station, his brigade boarded rail cars and traveled the final 34 miles to Manassas. Thusly. They became one of, if not the first in military history, to move to battle by means of railroad transportation. That being said, those 34 miles consumed eight hours. Upon arrival, he briefly rested his men, then had them up and on the march just after 3 a.m. on Sunday, July 21st, his wife's 30th birthday. By 11 a.m., they were in the area of the Stone Bridge, some 25 miles west-southwest of Washington City, and right in the middle of what would become the first major battlefield of the American Civil War. There, at Bull Run, or as the South would call it, Manassas, he was dressed in his old VMI blue faculty coat. His men, by early afternoon, held a position at the edge of woods on Henry House Hill. While opposing Union artillery shelled their line, Jackson, on horseback, rode slowly up and down. Every so often, he calmly repeated, Steady, men, steady. All is well. He did so despite the fact that his middle finger of his left hand had been fractured by either a bullet or piece of shrapnel. Suddenly, around 2.40 on that hot and humid Sunday, a rider dashed up the slope toward him. He had jet black eyes, dark mustache and goatee, long hair, and a military bearing. Jackson instantly recognized his West Point friend, Brigadier General Bernard B., and so began an immortalizing exchange. B., whose brigade had been battered, blurted, General, they are driving us. Jackson looked to the northwest toward the enemy and replied sternly, Sir, we will give them the bayonet. Now, B had little faith in the bayonet, but the reply stirred him. He returned to his men who were trying to piece together a defensive line, and as they tried, B with his sword pointed to the crest of Henry House Hill and in a booming voice shouted, Look, men, there is Jackson standing like a stone wall. Let us determine to die here, and we will conquer. Follow me. Now, I must mention that there is another interpretation to that story. There have been some who, over the years, question whether B's comment was delivered in admiration or insult. In other words, B was incensed, that Jackson's men did not advance to render aid but remained immobile, we will never know whether B. admired or was angry, for soon thereafter he was mortally wounded and died the next day. Regardless, the nickname he bestowed on Thomas Jonathan Jackson that July afternoon remains one of the most famous in American military history. Jackson's men stemmed the Union assault, and although there would be more desperate fighting that afternoon, Jackson's Virginia Brigade helped to turn the tide of battle. His stand that day, dramatic and worthy of legend. But in the days after the Confederate victory on the plains of Manassas, there came monotony. Encamped over the next six weeks and striving to maintain discipline, he allowed no furloughs—rather, 90 minutes of drill four times a day. Despite day-to-day maintenance and administration, Jackson was frustrated. He yearned for action, and so he proposed a campaign into federally held northwestern Virginia. But not only was it ignored, but Jefferson Davis believed it more evidence that his Manassas hero was too aggressive. Regardless, on October the 7th, 1861, Jackson was promoted to Major General and in early November was ordered to Winchester, Virginia. It was there he put together his first campaign as an independent commander. Known as the Romney Expedition, it involved winter marching and cooperation with an unsympathetic officer, Brigadier General William W. Loring. Jackson's plan required speed and decisiveness, and from Loring, he got neither. The weather didn't cooperate either, for marches were made in snow, sleet, and ice. Despite the inclement weather, Jackson successfully occupied Romney, but little seemed heroic. Two days later, incensed that he was ordered to move in such horrific weather, an angry William Loring and his men stumbled into town cold and numb. With the arrival of Loring's division, Jackson then opted to move his men elsewhere, but needed a force to hold the recently occupied town. And that task went to Loring, who immediately forwarded a formal complaint to Richmond. It reached a sympathetic ear. The then-Secretary of War, Judah Benjamin, ordered Jackson to immediately pull Loring and his men back. To Jackson, this was unheard of. It was a breach of chain of command. Jackson wrote the Secretary of War that he would obey the order, but also stated emphatically that he could not operate in the field with this kind of civilian interference. Therefore, he offered his resignation. When shown Jackson's letter, Jefferson Davis, fearing reaction from citizens if he lost the stone wall of Manassas, thundered, I'll not accept it, sir. It took some doing, but third parties interceded and in smoothed ruffled feathers. That included ridding Jackson of troublesome Loring, who found himself transferred to another department. It was about this time, in a meeting with a Confederate official, Jackson made a remark. If the Valley is lost, Virginia is lost. That comment spawned a daring campaign. The Valley Jackson referred to was, of course, the Shenandoah. As illustrated by the maps on this podcast site, the so-called breadbasket of the Confederacy stretches some 200 miles in length and some 20 to 25 miles wide. From Salem and Roanoke north to Winchester and Harper's Ferry, the valley is geographically encased by the Potomac River to the north, the James River to the south, the Ridge and Valley Appalachians to the west, and Blue Ridge Mountains to the east. For the Confederacy, the Valley yielded great amounts of foodstuffs and militarily offered the Federals a back door to Richmond, a Richmond that was about to be threatened by Union Major General George B. McClellan's 121,500-man Army of the Potomac, which was on its way for the Virginia Peninsula, that tidewater area between the York and James Rivers. Once landed on the peninsula, McClellan planned to drive west toward the Confederate capital to neutralize federal forces in the valley, to keep them from joining that large Union army on the peninsula, or from threatening Richmond from another point. Something had to be done to secure the valley, and that challenge was given to Jackson. However, to be effective, he needed a map and got an excellent one from a 33-year-old former New Yorker, Jedediah Hotchkiss, who years before hiked through the area, liked it, and settled there. With that map, Jackson now moved to confront several independent federal forces that were in and around the valley. His first opponent was Brigadier General James Shields, who had a 9,000-man division at Kernstown, Virginia, which was located some 8 to 10 miles south-southwest of Winchester. Shields, a salty character, had been a politician before the war and once challenged Abraham Lincoln to a duel. Fortunately, it never came to pass. There was an urgency about Shields' force, for rumor had it that it was about to be withdrawn and sent to join McClellan's force headed for the Virginia Peninsula. To pin Shields' division in the valley, Jackson, on March the 22nd, 1862, decided to move on Kernstown. Unfortunately, his reconnaissance was poor. Believing the enemy was similar in size to his own, at that time, about 3,600, Jackson attacked. In reality, Shields had almost three times Jackson's number— And so in the botched Battle of Kernstown, Stonewall, outnumbered, operating with a hastily made battle plan and suffering from poor communication between his divided elements, suffered defeat. Quite honestly, he was fortunate to get away. The outcome left him frustrated, angry, but the tactical defeat accomplished something of great strategic significance. The aggressive attack grabbed the attention of Commander-in-Chief Abraham Lincoln and it concerned him greatly. Fearful for the security of the Shenandoah Valley and for the safety of a vulnerable Washington city, Lincoln ordered Shields to stay exactly where he was. In fact, all federal troops in or near the valley were held. Troops under Union generals Nathaniel Banks, John C. Fremont, and Irvin McDowell's 40,000-man Union force at Fredericksburg, some 50 miles north of Richmond. Not only were they to remain where they were, but were ordered to coordinate activity to deal with this aggressive Confederate force of undetermined size. Richmond sensed Washington City's concern, and they played upon it. To prevent any additional federal forces from joining McClellan down on the peninsula, orders were issued for Jackson to continue to pin down the some 60,000 Union forces already in and around the Shenandoah Valley. To assist Jackson in that objective, 8,000 men under Major General Richard S. Ewell and 3,000 from Brigadier General Edward Allegheny Johnson joined Jackson's Army of the Valley and increased its number to some 17,500. And so the strategic chessboard was set, and so began one of the most remarkable campaigns in military history, the Valley Campaign. With no more than those 17,500 men, Stonewall Jackson began to dictate and control most of the military activity in the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War. On April 30, 1862, he began what would be 63 consecutive days of activity. Nine days later, he marched west to the tiny hamlet of McDowell where he drove back a Union force under John Fremont that had hoped to enter the valley from the west. Jackson then turned and marched east. When he reached the valley turnpike, for all practical purposes, today's I-81, he headed north to New Market, where he turned east and crossed Massanutten Mountain. That done, he pushed his men north, and on May 23rd, struck and routed an isolated 1,000-man enemy force at Front Royal. Two days later, Jackson followed up his Front Royal victory by routing Nathaniel Banks' federal force at Winchester, driving it north to the Potomac River and beyond. His so-called foot cavalry had since the May 8th Battle of McDowell marched 177 miles In 17 days. With those victories at Front Royal and Winchester and subsequent federal retreats, Stonewall Jackson cleared the Shenandoah Valley of all federal troops and had done so at a cost of only 400 casualties. Federal losses were 3,500 and captured stores were so great that it took days to compile the inventory. Yet, Jackson so far down the valley, that is, near the Potomac River, for the Shenandoah River flows south to north, Federal troops from both east and west now tried to coordinate their movements. They hoped to cut Jackson off, keep him from being able to fall back to the south. It became a race. With Shields' Federals moving in from the east, Fremont's from the west, Jackson's men, by mere hours, Won that race. Able to march to the southern end of the valley, Jackson then incredibly turned and offered battle. On June the eighth, he struck at Cross Keys, and then the next day at nearby Port Republic. Hasty planning almost cost him at the former, and bad reconnaissance at the latter, yet. Both federal armies that pursued him, frustrated to no end, abruptly turned northward, and the Valley Campaign of 1862 ended. In its remarkable execution, Jackson, in independent command, had alone engineered its operations. He had affected and frustrated Union efforts in the entire eastern theater of the American Civil War. With never more than 17,500 men, he had defeated forces totaling more than three times his number. He had inflicted close to 5,000 casualties, captured 9,000 small arms and tons of supplies at a cost of only 3,100. He had tied up anywhere from 60 to 80,000 who might have been used on the peninsula or elsewhere against Richmond. In short, his was a strategic masterpiece. One that made use of initiative, secrecy, audacity, isolating federal units, rapid marches, flanking strikes at unexpected quarters, strategic withdrawals to gain tactical advantages, fierce assaults, and pursuit. Again, keeping in mind that the vast majority of his army was on foot, in 48 marching days, His men covered 676 miles, a distance 50 miles greater than Charlotte, North Carolina to New York City. In the South, his fame soared. In the North, there was fear, yet begrudging respect. In fact, his tendency to attack from anywhere lent itself for use by northern nannies who warned misbehaving children that Stonewall will get you. Any commotion in camps, either Union or Confederate, yielded comment from common soldiers that it was either caused by Jackson or a rabbit. His obsession for secrecy is highlighted by a story. Near the end of the campaign, Jackson caught one of his men in a cherry tree. Angry with him for straggling, Jackson shouted sternly, "'What division do you belong to?' "'Don't know,' was the reply. "'What brigade?' "'Don't know.' "'Well, what regiment?' "'Don't know.' Jackson then angrily snapped, "'Well, what do you know, sir?' Back came the answer. I know that old Stonewall ordered me not to know anything and damned if I ain't going to stick to it. Indeed, Jackson's 1862 Valley Campaign spawned stories even into the 20th century. Up in Harper's Ferry, now West Virginia, at the confluence of the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers, there used to stand the Hotel Hilltop House. Perched some two to three hundred feet above the Potomac, its vistas were breathtaking. Among the famous who came to enjoy the scenery and cool air, Mark Twain, Alexander Graham Bell, Woodrow Wilson. A former owner once related the story of yet another who came to visit in the 1930s, one from a foreign land. The hotel clerk, as the story goes, noted the arrival of a very distinguished man, one with a military bearing and distinctive accent. Once he signed in, the clerk asked what brought him to such an out-of-the-way site. Matter-of-factly, he answered, to study your Stonewall Jackson. His name in the register, Erwin Rommel. When challenged, and it appears that indeed Rommel visited the United States in the 1930s and specifically the Shenandoah Valley, the owner swore the story absolutely true. 20th century tank tactics and lightning warfare based upon Jackson's strategy and tactics from his 19th century Valley campaign? It makes sense, for the campaign was truly remarkable. A campaign that still merits attention and study in military academies round the globe. Yes, Thomas Jonathan Jackson had won himself a nickname and garnered quite a reputation. But the war was still young, and great and desperate campaigns loomed. Campaigns that would feature one of the greatest tandems in military history, that of Lee and Jackson. This concludes part one of the life and career of Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson. Part two will pick up with his teaming with Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. To the Seven Days campaign, Cedar Mountain, Second Manassas, Antietam, Fredericksburg, and of course, the fateful clash of arms at Chancellorsville. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. Jackson has been the inspiration for many over the years, but two works in my mind demand your attention. First, Professor James I. Robertson, Jr.'s 1997 Stonewall Jackson, The Man, The Soldier, The Legend. And more recently, Rebel Yell, The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson, which came to us in 2015 thanks to S. C. Gwynn. Both are simply wonderful and allow you, if you will, to walk in Jackson's shoes and share his truly remarkable journey through life.